0: We are studying the book of James, and so if you would, take your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. We begin this morning in James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Father, we come to you this morning now and ask for your blessing on our reading and hearing of the text. This is your word that we come to to hear from, to obey, to sit under, and we pray that you would help our hearts to comprehend it well. Amen. Self-deception. This is perhaps the most dangerous fracture in our souls. Are you self-deceived? James is concerned throughout his letter... That we might be. In fact, he has said a few times: don't be deceived. This person deceives himself. In this portion of the letter, James is exposing these fractures, this double-mindedness in our lives. And I, I hope that as we've been working through these passages, that you are able to follow James's thinking and look at your own life, as I have been challenged to look at my own, and and discern and see where the text is showing you, like a mirror that we look into, James chapter one, where you need to change. James is exposing this double-mindedness first by talking about those of us who would hear the word without doing it, by confronting us in claiming to love our neighbor but actually discriminating against people, living as though faith without works can actually justify us before God and save us from judgment. He's exposing these things and how we operate and how we think as double-minded. And now he turns his attention to the tongue, that is, what we say and how we say it. It isn't just the words that we say, it has to do with how we communicate, and the tongue is the instrument of speech. How often have you said, if you're, if you're a parent, how often have you said to one of your kids, if you aren't apparent, you were a kid, and how often did you hear, it's not what you said, it's how you said it. The tongue is where all of that comes from. The Bible has a lot to say about the tongue. In the Old Testament, especially the wisdom books, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, of them all, Proverbs provides us with the clearest teachings and warnings about our speech both evil speech and wholesome speech, the power of the tongue to, to heal, to mend, to encourage. Jesus also taught about the tongue. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, he said, "'But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother "'will be liable to judgment. "'Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, "'and whoever says, "'You fool,' will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, if this connection between anger and speech sounds familiar, that's because James has already connected these. Be slow to anger, slow to speak, right? Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. He's already connected these things. It's because he is reproducing what Jesus taught. Sins of the tongue are also prominent In the New Testament letters, where there are lists of sinful behaviors that we are to put off, we're to leave this behind, we're to to get rid of this kind of lifestyle, they are to be discarded because they are out of place for someone who has new life in Christ. Some of the uses of the tongue that the the New Testament identifies as wrong and destructive, this is not an exhaustive list, but it includes gossip, gossip boasting, lying, falsehood, crooked speech, slander, reckless words, unwholesome talk, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse jesting, filthy language, abusive speech, blasphemy, chattering, cursing, flattery. These are all sins of the tongue of speech. And James is particularly concerned with our speech. In fact, he even mentions the tongue or speech in every single chapter in his letter here. He doesn't talk about the positive effects of wholesome speech like Proverbs does, but this is because James is exposing double-mindedness. He's confronting, he's calling us out about what we need to change And nothing demonstrates this double-mindedness or this duplicity in our hearts like the tongue, like what we say. He is after a wholeness of speech, then, that our speech be consistent, that it be made whole, that it not be divided. We have a we have a, a phrase, an idiom in our language, a forked tongue. Someone speaks with a forked tongue. That's a tongue that is divided. It says one thing over here, says another over here. There is need for recognition on our part and repentance. Now, it begins in verse 1 with a warning Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, this is the headliner. By teacher, he doesn't mean anyone who ever gives instruction or advice or counsel. The New Testament shows that there is a mutual ministry of teaching within the church body. We are to teach one another. We're to admonish one another. James is referring to a defined role. It's a role of of instructor or instruction It's not necessarily the elders of the church, though it certainly includes the elders, but it's any defined role where someone functions as a teacher. This is a warning to those who want to become teachers, and it implies a warning to those who already teach. The we, here we, James is saying that he includes himself in this this role in this activity in the church. The teacher, of course, was extremely important to the people of Israel. And remember, James is writing mostly to believers who are Jews, who have come to Christ out of the Jewish faith. Rabbis were held in high esteem. They were usually educated. They were seen as authorities. They were sought out for instruction they were also sought after for adjudicating conflicts for sitting in judgment over what was right and what was wrong that's why you see in the gospels people coming to Jesus for decisions about legal matters about the law the warning is that teachers will be judged with greater strictness meaning that teachers will undergo a stricter examination when God evaluates them A lot of times this warning is taken to be about doctrine. You may have heard this verse used in this way. Teachers are held by God to a greater accountability to get the truth right. That when you teach and you're instructing out of the scriptures, that God will judge the teacher more strictly in terms of his doctrine, his theology, that he's communicating the truth. But that is not what James is talking about here as we, we'll see. In this passage, James is warning us that the tongue is dangerous. Everything he says here says, danger, danger. It's dangerous. He is warning all of us, but he does have an eye toward leaders in the churches, especially those who are aspiring to be teachers. And He doesn't return to that, but it will make sense when we get to the end what he's talking about. So James exposes three reasons why the tongue is dangerous. He gives us three reasons why the tongue is dangerous to life so that we will change the way we talk. So we'll turn from it. We'll see the danger of the tongue. The tongue is dangerous because it is powerful, it is destructive, and it is treacherous. Right? Verse 2, the tongue is dangerous because it is powerful. It is powerful. We all stumble in many ways. In other words, we all fail in many ways. The stumbling is the idea of, of a moral stumble. Something trips us up. We lose our balance. He used the same word back in chapter 2, verse 10, when he said that if someone keeps the whole law but fails in one point stumbles, same word, stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all of it. So if he fails or stumbles, we're guilty of the whole law. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Perfect. Here's this word again. What James is saying is if someone could and the idea here is not totally hypothetical it is that that's what we should be striving for but the reality is that it's so difficult that he speaks of it as like it's a hypothetical if if someone could bridle their tongue it would mean perfection that person would be perfect whole no fractures nothing lacking completely consistent and without fault. Why? Because if a person can control the tongue, he can bridle his whole body. If someone can lift 500 pounds, they can lift 200. If someone can run 26 miles, they can run 10. If you can do the more difficult thing, you can surely do the easier thing. If you master what you say, you can bring any and every aspect of your life into check. That's what James is saying. That's how powerful, that's how influential the tongue is, which launches James into two illustrations to portray the, tongue, the tongue's influence, just how influential it is over your whole life. And he uses two common, everyday, universal objects, a horse. And a ship. Each of these is large, powerful, but is controlled by something small. Verse three, we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us. We guide their whole bodies as well. A bit, of course, is the small piece of metal. Sometimes it's made of rubber, uh, it's connected to the reins, and it was placed in the back of the horse's mouth. And there's actually a very sophisticated science and an entire industry that is devoted to horse bits. Some are larger, some are smaller, some provide less control, some provide more control. Some are, are styled for jumping horses, some for training horses. Some are smooth, some are shaped like a corkscrew, some use springs, Some are straight, some are angled. So there's a whole, like I said, there's a whole science and craft behind the bits using bits in horse's mouth. The bit works because it applies pressure to the horse's tongue and gums, which are very sensitive areas in the mouth. When the left reins then are pulled, that causes pain and discomfort on the left side of the horse's mouth, which turns his head, which then turns his whole body. The whole horse follows. We guide their whole bodies as well. James's point is this: A horse is a large, powerful, noble creature that is controlled of a very, very small, seemingly insignificant object, a bit. And that bit is disproportionate in its size to the amount of power that it it affects over the horse. Verse 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So powerful is a rudder, James says, that a pilot can even overcome such external forces as strong winds. These are storms or gales, remember of course James is not thinking of big ocean liners like he's thinking of ships that sail but by the simple skillful use of the rudder he can overcome those things even in our own day with all of our technology and advances in naval craft we can see just how powerful the rudder is some of you may remember an incident That took place almost 20 years ago when a cruise liner called the Norwegian Sky did a faceplant just up here in the Straits of Juan de Fuca. The Seattle Times reported that the Norwegian Sky, quote, was about 70 miles west of Port Angeles when it suddenly turned at a high speed, causing it to list 8 degrees. Water sloshed out of the swimming pool, threw objects off shelves, and sent passengers to the decks. Now, whether this was a navigational error or whether it was a programming error or whether it was some sort of digital malfunction, it turned out that the computerized autopilot turned the rudder when the ship was going at its normal speed, not at a slow speed to turn, but at its normal speed. The the autopilot turned the rudder and slap sideways she went, causing 78 injuries and Fortunately, no deaths. By the way, the Norwegian sky was an 853-foot boat weighing 76,000 tons. That's 152 million pounds on its side, tilted simply because the rudder turned. So the rudder, again, disproportionate in size to the ship but has this great influence. Don't think that because the tongue is small and life is big, that the tongue is insignificant or something to trifle with. The tongue's power is disproportionate to its size. As a bit turns the horse, as a rudder determines the course of the ship, so your tongue exerts great power. Great influence, despite how small it is. The point is that we control, uh, that as we control our tongues or fail to control our tongues, the whole direction of our lives is determined. So first of all, the tongue is dangerous because it's powerful. It's powerful. Secondly, the tongue is dangerous because it is destructive. It's destructive. Verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Now here, James is not talking about boasting as in prideful boasting. He's saying that the tongue may be small, but it can legitimately claim mighty accomplishments. But the example of the power that the tongue exerts here is a negative one. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Now, no one has to explain this truth to us in the Pacific Northwest. We experience great forest fires almost every summer. Now, western Washington, where things are plenty wet, we just suffer the smoke from them, mostly. But we all know how easy it is for these fires to start. One spark, one flash of lightning, one cigarette butt carelessly thrown, and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of acres of forest are destroyed and often property, and sometimes lives are even lost. James says, verse 6, the tongue is a fire. The tongue is like a bit. The tongue is like a rudder. But the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It may operate like a bit, and it may operate like a rudder, but this is the very nature of the tongue. This is the very nature of how we talk. It is destructive. The bit and the rudder illustrate the tongue's power, but this describes something small, producing something vast and out of control. The tongue is a fire because the tongue is by nature destructive. Fire doesn't exist unless it is burning something, unless it is consuming, destroying something. Our speech is an out of control wildfire. One word, one sarcastic remark, one slip of the tongue, and destruction. Quickly. Reputations, trust, integrity, lives are destroyed. When he says the tongue is a, is a world of unrighteousness, the word for world is the word cosmos. We get the word cosmos from it. What he's saying is that every kind, it is a universe. It is a universe of unrighteousness every kind of evil finds some expression in the tongue in other words it is in a sense because it is so small it is a microcosm of all unrighteousness whether that's anger or jealousy or pride or lust the tongue has the destructive power to express and ignite it all And even though a microcosm of evil to itself, it has cosmic ramifications. It is set among our members. There it is. It's placed. Our words, our speech. But the tongue stains the whole body. It's set among our members three phrases then, James uses. Staining the whole body. Like a tiny bit turns a huge horse, a tiny rudder steers a massive ship. The tiny tongue stains or defiles the whole person. Setting on fire the entire course of life, when it defiles the person, it burns everything around it. Set on fire by hell, the origin of the tongue's destructive bent James says, is a demonic one, a devilish one. Hell itself fuels it. Every one of us knows how one word said in just the right way can wound us so deeply. It only takes one stray word to wreck somebody's life. One careless comment can cost you a lifelong friendship. We all at some time or another have been the victims of this fire and at other times the perpetrators. The tongue is dangerous because it is destructive. Thirdly, the tongue is dangerous because it is treacherous. It is dangerous because it is treacherous. James looks back at the creation account here, beginning in verse 7, and he recognizes, I think in the back of his mind here, is God's command to man and woman to subdue the earth. And he's saying it's being accomplished. Part of that is the taming of the creatures. Every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So while every creature is being tamed, the tongue eludes us. This animal is more vicious than any beast, faster than any bird, and more powerful than anything in the depths of the sea. No human being can tame the tongue as a general rule of life. Perhaps it is most similar of these creatures to the crafty viper, since it is full of deadly poison. But the key word here is restless, it is a restless evil. It is important because James has used this word before, though you might not recognize it in your English Bible, but it is the same word that is unstable in chapter 1, verse 8. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the person who prays to God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. But instead of trusting God to provide the wisdom that God singly, very holistically gives without ulterior motive, instead of trusting God to do that, this person then doubts God, sits in judgment against God, and divides out whether or not God will actually do what he's promised he will do. That is the doubting. Someone like that is tossed around like a wave of the sea. This is the unstable or restless person, double minded, unstable in all his ways. So the tongue is an unstable evil or a treacherous evil, it is divided. It is fractured. In what way is it unstable? In what way is the tongue double-minded? Verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing my brother's these things ought not to be so. Hmm. Cursing doesn't mean cussing here. He's not talking about just vulgar profanity. He's talking about slanderous remarks. The tongue is unstable, the tongue is duplicitous because it blesses God, praising God, saying true and right things about God maybe even teaching about God, but curses people with slanderous, demeaning words. Isn't this the same point that James has been making over and over again? My brothers, these things ought not to be so. It is utter absurdity. It is beyond comprehension that the mouth that produces blessing toward God could gush with cursing of people, especially blessing God, but cursing someone who is made in his likeness. Do you see the absurdity of it? But you see, we neglect that truth when we cut someone down. James wraps up his point by pushing the impossibility of such a thing. Verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? No, no it doesn't. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? No, no they can't. (laughs) Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water? Nope, can't go in that direction either. Salt can't produce fresh and fresh can't produce salt. There is no such thing as a spring that produces fresh water one day and salt water the next. It is a geological impossibility. And yet our mouths can produce blessing one minute and the very next minute produce cursing. is what James is saying. It cannot be so. Likewise, fig trees produce figs. Olive trees, olives. Vines produce grapes. James sees the mouth as a fountain, and its words are the waters that flow from it. Is this possible? Salt water and fresh water? No. Only an unstable person. Only a deceived person would stand under an olive tree and say, where are the figs? Where are the figs? But that is what the double-minded person does. He or she says, I'm a freshwater spring. I'm a freshwater spring. Curse, curse, curse. Slander, cut, cut, cut. What comes out of our mouths reveals what's really in the heart. It is the out gate of the heart. That's why Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out. He didn't just mean that the heart was defiled. He was saying that the heart and the tongue work together. And what comes out is a unified whole Now, if we go back to verse 1, the reason for warning not many of you should become teachers becomes a little clearer. James isn't concerned about theological accuracy here. James is saying teachers will be judged with greater strictness because the margin for duplicity is greater for someone who teaches the Scriptures. In a few minutes, we will close our time together here with a song of praise and a praise to God, and we will walk out of this building, and we will cut someone down. We will slander someone. It might be on the drive home when someone cuts you off or doesn't stop at the stop sign like you think they should have. And we never see the hypocrisy, the double-mindedness of doing so. If I do that, think about this. If I do that, I incur a greater, stricter, uh, greater strictness of judgment. Why? Because I just spent 45 minutes teaching. Is that not a greater act of duplicity? Yeah, it is. So, teachers ought to be a lot more frightened by this passage than just worried about making sure their doctrine is correct. Those who would teach the scriptures have to ask how do I treat my wife or my husband? How do I treat my kids? Do I teach the scriptures? Do I teach a Bible study and then turn and cut my spouse down or cut my kids down or sarcastic, slander, talk about somebody behind their back? Oh, that's a lot more serious. That is much more serious of a problem, isn't it? I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at keeping my doctrine straight. I'm not always that good at keeping my tongue in check. So there's a warning here then against presumptuousness for the would-be teacher, but the warnings about the power, the destructiveness, and the treachery of our speech is for all of us. The tongue is dangerous, and it is a key measure of how double-minded we are. How double-minded are you? I hope that blessing God, praises for God come forth from your mouth like water from a spring. What about cursing, though? What do you say? Mutter under your breath about somebody. What do you say to other people about other people? What do you call people? Now, our entire... Our entire political culture. what? What a day to be preaching this, three weeks away from an election, right? Which you guys should be very prayerful about, by the way. Our entire political culture is built on the saltwater spring. It is built on the ability to cut somebody else down, including our president. Now, regardless of policies, okay, or where you stand in terms of uh, government and government theory and all of those things, he has set a tone in our country of the opposite of what James is after here. You talk about setting a forest on fire, and he's not the only one. He's not the cause of the times. He's a product of the times. And we as Christians can understand that. But listen, the real question is not what are they doing, it's what are we doing? What about us? My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Lord, we need divine help. And Lord, you through your servant James, have stitched all of these things together, the need to do the word and not just hear it. Lord, to to show mercy and not discrimination. Lord, to have a faith that works, not just claim to have a faith, because the faith without works is dead. And Lord, you now have exposed our tongues and our speech how we talk about other people who are made in your likeness. And may it be here at this point that you would help us as your people to be salt and light in the world, to be distinctive in our speech, in how we talk, that we might become perfect, whole, and that we cannot, if our speech is not demonstrating that work of transformation that you're doing. Lord, we trust you and we love you. And as we sing now and prepare our hearts for your table, we pray that you would, you would bring us to conviction, that you would bring us to repentance as we need it. Lord, that you would Remind us of how great your forgiveness is and that it is only by your grace that we can take these steps and live these ways. In your great name, we request these things.